Hello and welcome to episode number 181 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, we speak to Enno Marsan, lecturer in political history at Utrecht University and the author of Representing Modern Istanbul, Urban History and International Institutions in 20th Century Beorlu, published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury. The book examines the transformations of Istanbul through a number of key institutions in the city's historical, iconically cosmopolitan Beolu district. It's an area that was very sadly in the news because of the recent deadly bomb attack on the central thoroughfare Istiklal Jadesi or Istiklal Avenue, not far up from where I'm speaking right now. But of course, the area has a rich history, particularly since the 19th century, as the centre of, quote, European Istanbul, the site of various embassies, cultural, religious establishments, and a potent symbolic centre in domestic and international literature, travel logs, films, and TV series. The book pours a bit of cold water on some of the more tired clichés about the romantic cosmopolitanism of the Beolu district and its vibrant belly pop golden age, and we dig into that in our conversation. But before we start, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter still. And you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in Ivy Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by Ivy Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. And indeed, that includes the book that we're talking about in this episode. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books pre orders and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Enno Marsan. He writes that Beolu or Galata or Pera has become the iconic site of Istanbul's imagined cosmopolitanism, particularly prone to over-romanticization, nostalgia or convenient cosmopolitanisms. So I started by asking him what lies behind that long-running popular idea, both at home and in the tourist guides, of Beolu's decline from a golden past age of idealized cosmopolitanism. In a sense, you know, like the story of Beolu is unique. In some ways, it's also not. I mean, we see similar trends, I mean, uh, of, you know, like this nostalgia for a quote unquote lost cosmopolitanism in a variety of other cities as well or other districts around the world, particularly also in the Middle Eastern cities, uh, notably in Egypt. 
In the case of Beolo, it has its roots, you might argue, in the 1980s. Uh, so the 1980s, you know, like in the post-coup era, relative relaxation of the approach towards uh, the Ottoman path. And it's very important to stress relative here because, I mean, of course, still this was a very selective and, you know, like uh, skewed interpretation of the Ottoman past, you know, like as it was presented to the public from the side of the state, of course, but also the way, you know, like in which the public interpreted the past Ottoman or maybe early Republican in the context of Beolo was also very much, you know, like colored through the lens of the uh, of the 1980s, you could argue. And so there was a cosmopolitanism, which was very much classist, I would argue, and various other colleagues have argued that as well. So it focused mostly on sort of, you know, like a supposed loss of bourgeois culture, the loss of a, a fancy reputation of the district, and also a fancy appearance in that center, and that mostly focuses on the Isiklaja de Siso, the, the main archery of the district, how that was really you know, like an upscale, interesting place to be, how that had been lost by the 1980s. Of course, you can argue whether or not you know, like such a cosmopolitan had ever existed. You might argue that around the end of the 19th century, there was a limited cosmopolitanism in Beolo, although also that was a very, you might argue, elitist phenomenon, uh, whereas, you know, like, especially in the lower middle classes, lower classes, it was people were living together, obviously interacting with each other, but it was also a great deal of segregation, spatially, but also a communal segregation. And, you know, like in the 1980s, there was very little engagement with those communities that had been effectively destroyed, basically, and especially in the context of Beolo, but also in the context of other districts in Istanbul. So that is why you could argue huh, that the discourse of cosmopolitanism was relatively problematic. Now, the reason why it was so interesting for people at the time was it provided them with an interesting episode or imagined episode of a past that was no longer approachable, that they could yearn for, and, uh, that they could try to revive or revitalize. So that is also what you see a lot. So people like Etam Aldem talk about how you suddenly see an increase in the amount of, you know, like taverns or or mehanes which start serving Armenian mezes or, you know, like that you would hear Greek music being played on the street or an institution or a civil society organization like the Beolo Beautification Association, which starts to beautify Beolo and then again also mostly the area around Istiklalja de Sihe. so again also there you see you know like a uh, that it, it was engaging with a a very limited space but also you know like a very limited interpretation of Beolo so I think you know like in in that sense you know like it provided people with a colorful narrative of the past so that is sort of the in a broad way, you could argue sort of the, the outline of why this cosmopolitanism is interesting and also why it is called problematic in the context of Beolo. Yeah. And you start the book with quotes from a particularly shallow example of this in a New York Times article from 2016. And that was obviously a time of countless terror attacks and bombings and political instability. And of course, that year's coup attempt in July. And that article basically lamented the loss of this imagined bygone age it described Istiklal Jadesi's current state as, quote, a symbol of the city's malaise. So these tropes of decline and, and this, this lost old-fashioned cosmopolitanism do also seep into international media coverage. 
And a lot of the nostalgia that you talk about focuses on Beolu being this, like we say, cosmopolitan centre, international in temperament and symbol really of this lost belly pot golden age. But there's another side of the coin as well that you talk about in the book and how in Turkish discourse and at the time Ottoman Muslim discourse, Beolu was basically associated with foreignness in a very negative way. It was this symbol of sin and vice and impurity, moral decay and all those bad things associated basically with non-Turkishness. And there are countless examples of this trope in cultural production, novels, films, etc., And many of these contrasted Beolu with, quote, more pious districts like Fatih, and they were perceived as being much more authentically Muslim. So could you just talk about how Beolu and Pera in the 19th and 20th centuries became this metaphor or symbol in a negative sense? Sure. Yes. So you're absolutely right. So, I mean, these representations of Beolu as a, as a, as a place of moral deprivation, uh, I mean, they have, you know, like very long roots, uh, at least to the 19th century. Yeah. So there is a sense of these stereotypes of Pera being, uh, Pera Galata being something very different from the rest of Istanbul. The idea that Beolu was an island in the city, that is something that you see recurring in a variety of sources, both local, Ottoman and international, mostly uh, from European perspectives. That discourse of Be- as of Beolu huh, as being something very different, or I mean, uh, when it comes to you know, like the negative representations of the district, I mean they are quite often you know like re-emerge. You could argue in the 20th century. Huh? So you have certain stereotypes, as you also uh, stated in your question, that have origins in the 19th century but reappear in the 20th century. So these representations, both positive and negative, you know, they are recurrent. Sometimes they submerge, and then for variety of reasons they are re-emerged or made to re-emerge and that is also something that you see a lot in the past 30 to 40 years in the context of Beol, huh, that state officials and private uh, companies you know, like make these negative stereotypes to re-emerge uh, and connect it to uh, more specific areas in Beolu like Tarlabasha or Topane, Galataport, uh, sort of you know, like to argue for the need to save this district uh, because it has been deprived, decayed uh, whatever. So so one of the most interesting examples is, of course, this idea of moral deprivation. So you mentioned, you know, like Fatih as the more authentic and more pious district, as opposed to Beolo being, you know, like the more foreign and the more morally deprived, if you will. And a lot of that engages, for instance, you know, like with ideas about Beolo as a place where people lose their their sense of, you know, like good Muslim or Turkish morals. Uh, so a place that is full of crime, a place that is full of prostitution and so on and so forth. Uh, so that is something, you know, like that you see in accounts from Ottoman writers, Ottoman officials who write on Beolo, how, how sort of, you know, like they themselves or others that they encountered, how they lost themselves in the arms of a of a of a Greek speaking prostitute. So this is, you know, like these are stories you know, like that are have been recounted by colleagues of mine uh, in, uh, in 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 memoirs and and literary works 
Uh, so that is something that you see in the 19th century, uh, whereas actually you can uh, definitely say that you know, like prostitution was definitely not a phenomenon that was limited to Beolo. It was spread over the city. I mean, it was uh, spread also over various communities, both customers and sex workers. So that you already see sort of, you know, like that the veracity of, of narratives like this are, you know, like relatively low. That being said, this idea of crime, sex, moral deprivation also certainly lives on into the 1940s, 1950s, uh, where various nationalist authors uh, talk about Beolo and they often take, you know, like this sort of age old, somewhat annoying <laughs> metaphor of the Bridge, uh, uh, in this case, the Galata Bridge, uh, in which they s- suggest that the Galata Bridge is sort of a a place where two mentalities, two cultures are completely separated from each other. Uh, so where Turkish children are alienated from their ethnic, uh, ethno-nationalist spirit. Uh, they do not recognize the, the call for prayer anymore when they're living in Beolo. Of course, when they're living in Fatih al-Sultanahmet, they do. Also, other authors, you know, like they just describe it as a place that is so bail that is full of gambling that is full of criminal activity full of freemasons also full of jews full of armenians everything you know like sort of that they want to exteriorize out of the turkish ethno-nationally defined nation or community is presented or pushed onto that idea of Beolo. And that is, I think, also quite important uh, to sort of, you know, like to focus on those representations because, you know, like those representations of negativity of the area, but also the communities who lived or live in the area as being part of those negative qualities, obviously also had, you know, like a huge impact on, you know, like how these communities were subsequently treated. I mean, when we talk about, you know, like the former Ottoman Milets, non-Muslim communities, then we can definitely argue uh, that that was not a very favorable treatment uh, from the perspective of the Turkish state and also in you know, like uh, parts of the of Turkish society. So that is one part of uh, of the story. But in the book, I also try to show actually that these negative representations overshadow the daily life of Beolo, which is often spectacularly boring. I mean, as life in any city can be spectacularly boring and very mundane. So the idea, I mean, that, you know, like that you would sort of, you know, like fall over drunkards, you know, like on every hour of the day or that, you know, like you would run in constantly into dilapidated buildings in Beolo is simply not true. So, of course, we see a lot of dilapidation and desertion for a variety of reasons uh, in Beolo in the period that I'm focusing on, so 1950 and 1990. But I think it's important to stress, actually, that this district, as other, you know, like central districts in European cities, are not somehow, you know, like completely abandoned. They are simply too important, especially in the case of Beolo, for the infrastructure and sort of, you know, like the economic, cultural, social state of the city. Uh, So Beolo, throughout those 40 years, may lose some of its significance to newer districts. But on the other hand, we do see, you know, like that it remains a very important uh, center of activity and that runs directly counter those negative stereotypes about the area. Now, your study particularly focuses on the decades from 1950 to 1990. 
these years are typically seen as fallow years, basically of demise and decay. But you describe it as a very interesting period and a crucial one in Beolu, quote, marked by important shifts in its demography, society, cultural production, position in the city's economy and fundamental transformations in its urban landscape. So why focus on this era? Why is this era particularly interesting? Yeah, thanks. Um, that's that's also a good question. I mean, and the answer, I mean, what you need to do sort of you know, like to, to get an answer on that question is to zoom out a little bit to Istanbul and, uh, and possibly also Turkey. And then you see that there is a greater acceptance, nationally speaking, that Istanbul, you know, like was, is and will remain the economic heartland of the Republic of Turkey. There had been, you know, like substantial plans, obviously, to relocate you know, the capital, not just politically, but also in, in other ways, uh, to Ankara in the 1920s and 1930s. But already, you know, like in the late 1920s and early 1930s, there seems to be a growing acceptance among, you know, like the at least part of the Kamalist nationalists that Istanbul is simply too big and strategically located to neglect it. And then you see, you know, like a variety of urban uh, transformation plans being implemented. So they start, uh, roughly speaking, in the 1940s, but you know, like they really get up to speed in the 1950s. And from the 1950s onwards is also the period when Istanbul grows from sort of a mid-sized city into a full-blown metropolis. So in the 40 years, more or less, give or take, that I'm studying, you see, you know, like a spectacular growth in size, but also in demography of Istanbul. I think you know, that is one reason in itself. You know, like to focus more on Istanbul, in my case, especially especially Beol, obviously, but to focus on this particular period. Huh? So we see, you know, like a city which experiences a massive transformation, yet we see so little work actually being done scholarly, but also you know, like when we talk about public histories that actually engages with sort of this this process of transformation. Talk there about urbanization. Obviously, there was this massive urbanization in Istanbul, particularly from the 1950s and accelerating at other times throughout you know, the period that you were looking at. And this was a, a process of urbanization, but it wasn't a simple process of just people moving to the cities and becoming urban, because most migrants moved to the urban periphery. This was most famously, perhaps, represented by the Gejukondus that started sprouting up on the edge of the big cities like Istanbul. And these were areas that really were not urban at all at the time, but people popped up there started planting roots and basically rigging up water facilities, electricity connections, gas connections over time. And this really defined Istanbul and other big cities in Turkey throughout the second half of the 20th century. There was this sense of Istanbul's economic and cultural centre basically moving away gradually from places like Beyoğlu. The centre of gravity was moving to these peripheral areas that, you know, were a lot more dynamic and a lot younger. And I just wonder if you could talk about that, you know, what effect did that form of urbanization have on a rooted place like Beolu in the years that you were studying it? I think you know, like uh, you you definitely have a point uh, saying you know, like that the 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 impact of you know like these Gejekondo areas was you know like uh, very strong 
on Istanbul. On the other hand, what we see now as the peripheries of Istanbul, I mean, uh, were not the peripheries of uh, of the city back then. Huh? So, I mean, a lot of these Gijekondu areas have now actually become, you could argue, centers of uh, or new centers uh, of the of the metropolitan area. You know, like as time progressed, you know, like the proximity of what what is the periphery has also you know, like moved, you know, like to new borders of the of the city and is still moving, you know, like into new uh, borders huh? so to the extent you know like that some people living in Istanbul may actually be closer to Bursa from the perspective of you know like traveling than they are to this the older centers of Istanbul Beşiktaş Kadıköy Beyoğlu now regarding you know like the point on the centers of cultural activity moving away from Beyoğlu I would not entirely agree with that I mean the problem is you know like that despite of you know like the fact that Istanbul has you know like this sort of you know like suction effect you know like on communities from you know like various places in Anatolia and of course also Trace and many of these people moving into the peripheries we also need to keep in to mind I mean that Turkey relatively speaking is a quite a poor country uh, in those years and Istanbul is also not a very wealthy city I mean there's a lot of economic activity there but I mean the reason why these people are settling in Gecekondu is also an indicator you could argue of the you know governmental incapacity you know like to facilitate a structured ordered settler policy yeah, for these internal migrants but you know coming back to the issue of culture a lot of the people who actually were living in peripheries they would come for their own entertainment or for the purpose of entertaining others exactly to these central areas not just Beolu, but also some of the older districts but certainly Beolu, because Beolu, I mean, if we look, for instance, at the 19th century infrastructure, was the place sort of that had, you know, like a, a particularly strong presence of uh, of cinemas. And in the 1960s and 1970s also becomes the center of production for a new cinema industry. And so this Turkish Hollywood, the Yeshilcham movie production, huh, which produces over 300 films at its height. So uh, Beol remains sort of, you know, like for the consumption and production of culture, a very important center. If you look, for instance, at, at film, but also if you look more at quote unquote high culture, uh, we see, for instance, that in the post 1950s period, you know, like on Taksim Square, you know, like one of the major constructions or major sort of landmarks on that square is the Ataturk Cultural Center. Huh? which is the home of you know like a variety of you know like cultural companies whether it's theater or opera ballet what have you uh, that all converge again in Beolu. apart from that we see a lot of cultural production and sort of cultural performance in casinos places like taxi maxim you know, like remains a place where you know like established or to be established national performers like zeki miran Bülent ersoy would perform again also in Beolu. Huh? So people would remain attracted by this infrastructural heritage huh? and sort of what that infrastructural heritage could facilitate in Beolu. Many of your listeners have probably also uh, watched this new Netflix series, uh, so The Club, Kulüp, 
And that exactly engages also with that issue of nightclubs, casinos, uh, and sort of also more the, the lower, the darker side of Beolo has sort of the shady nightclubs uh, and the beer halls and, and these kind of places. Uh, so those were also very much a part, you could argue, I think, of this uh, cultural infrastructure of Beolo that very much remains alive in, uh, in, uh, in that period, uh, despite of this uh, massive growth of the city. And you alluded to it in the previous answer, but the years that you looked at, they did see Beoli become the home of the Turkish cinema industry, popularly known as Yeshil Cham, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, of course. Those decades were basically the golden era of this fledgling domestic film industry. So what can Yeshil Cham tell us about the Beoli of this era? Where does Yeshil Cham fit into the picture, if you pardon the pun? Well, in a one sense, you know, like Bill is a center for the production of Yeshucham. It is a center for the consumption of Yeshucham. Of course, it's consumed all over, you know, like Turkey and also abroad. But again, due to this sort of large or strong presence of a variety of cinemas in the Beol area, you know, like in Istanbul, at least, Beol was an important center for the consumption of cinema. But it also, in many ways, is a, a point of representation in Yishulcham. So it is often, you know, like a place where footage is being shot. So it is also, you know, like a center in that sense of, you know, like imagining and representing the city of Istanbul uh, through the perspective of Beolu, through a larger audience in uh, in Turkey. To the extent, I mean, that, you know, Beolu also becomes a part of, you know, like the title of these films. So, so like Beolu Güzelle or Beolu Beolu. I mean, these kind of films, you know, like they really, I mean, and this is just two examples, but they really put Beolu at the center point of of the of the representation of Istanbul, largely speaking, and in that sense, you know, like make Beolu also very important for the imagining of the big city to Turkish audiences. On the other hand, you know, like it makes Beolu more significant also for newer generations, also for the generations who had moved towards Istanbul in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and also their children and grandchildren, huh? because Yeshilcam remains to be very popular up to the present day or at least you know like a, a number of classics uh, for uh, for sure so they also created a new cinematic heritage you could argue it is you know like a fact uh, that this the spatial center point of this heritage is Beolu. That being said, it is quite sad to see, and there are many activists or people who may not identify as activists, uh, but uh, are simply sorry for the loss of this part of uh, Turkey's heritage. Like, not a lot of value is being attributed, spatially speaking, to this quite important part of cultural memory in Turkey. Yeah? So many of the, the places that were very strongly interconnected with the production, with the screen of these Yishichaum films in Beirut have been destroyed, particularly thinking then also with one of the areas that I focus on in the book, uh, that is the area around the Sec Dorian building. Uh, so the all the cinemas in there, the historical cinemas have been destroyed in there, but one that is particularly noticeable is, uh, is the Emek Cinema Theater, uh, which used to be the Melek Cinema, prior to when it was taken over by the, by the pension fund. 
that building has been entirely destroyed almost 10 years ago now already uh, and that you know, like is a a symbol you could say for the disregard also of the of this cultural heritage and of this cultural memory so you know like that is again you know, like a, a rather sad part of Yeshilcham and its connection with Beol. And there are chapters in the book on various institutions of Beolu that reflect interestingly on the themes of the book. I'm not going to go through them all here, but I do want to talk about the English school for girls, the English high school for girls, because this one particularly intrigued me as I'm English and I didn't know anything really about this institution. Obviously, I'd heard of it, but it doesn't exist anymore. So it's a bit of a vacuum really in the historical memory. So why is that school so interesting? Why did you choose that school for one of these key chapters in the book? Yeah, well, as is often the case, you know, when you try to approach such a vast area, I mean, Beol is quite large. I mean, in terms of its population, but also in terms of its size. I mean, I'm based in Utrecht, so which is a sort of a one of the larger Dutch cities. But I mean, like in terms of population, you know, like Beol has probably a, a larger population than than Utrecht altogether. As I also explained in the context of cinema, you know, like it is such a massive area to you know like, to imagine uh, because so many people actually take issue with it and you know like imagine, think about, and talk about this area. And as a historian, you need certain you know like entry points to connect with you know like historical patterns. And one of the proven ways in which you can do that is, I think, uh, micro histories. And that is why I chose you know like in the context of Beola, which is you know like demographically, spatially, and discursive vast that is the reason why i focused on you know a number of micro histories of the area which are not exemplary but symptomatic of you know like larger trends in the area and yes one of those examples was the english high school for girls or nowadays it's known as since the early 1980s it's known as the Beolo anadolu so the Beolo anatolian high school on istiklajatisi so it's still in the same building and the reason why i chose that particular institution is also because I could work with that institution. So one of the problems with communities or working with communities in Beola is that quite often they are not very accessible. For instance, you know, like accessing, you know, like the Greek speaking community that still has connections in Beola is quite complicated. Even, you know, like for scholars, you know, like who have a Greek background or, you know, like a local Greek speaking background in Istanbul, it is quite difficult uh, to work with their material uh, because they're, for understandable reasons, very cautious with their material. But that is also something that you see a lot with state institutions. uh, So that also makes it quite complicated to work with them. So what you need is actually institutions that have some willingness to cooperate with you and sort of, you know, like to take the risk of taking you in as a researcher together working out a conversation and understanding of you know what both of our agendas are as the institution and as the as the researcher and sometimes it is also simply a reason of you know like that you can work with institutionalized archives so in the case of the english high school that was the case because i mean uh, i tried actually to work with the representatives of the Beolo anatolian high school but it was impossible for a variety of reasons but a lot of the documentation 
of the British Council and also the English consulate and English embassy, sorry, British consulate, British embassy, was actually stored in Kew in London, which is one of the most accessible archives uh, on the planet. So that made it also you know, particularly convenient for me to work with that material and sort of add onto that with interviews uh, from students at the high school and former teachers at, uh, at the high school. So that is sort of the background of why I decided to work with that particular case study. What it tells us about Beolo in the, that period, particularly between the 1950s and 19, early 1980s, is that we see a great sense of continuity in Beolo as a educational center for a variety of reasons. Again, here we see the issue of infrastructure. So Beolo ha- had, you know, like historically, a great number of school buildings and rep- reputable schools in the area. So that was one of the reasons, sort of, you know, like that those schools were also able, uh, sort of, to to persevere and you know like due to the rapid rise of population in turkey broadly speaking and especially also due to internal migration in istanbul in particular you also see you know the need for schools from the primary school to the to the middle school to the high school to the university was in a very high demand uh, so and people were very keen especially if you were part of the middle classes higher middle classes and bourgeoisie to get your child into a reputable school like the english high schools like the german high school like one of the french schools the italian school of course also robert's robert college or iskadar american uh, american high school just to have some control over you know like the prospects of your child's future Future. That was one of the reasons why people try to get their children, if they had the financial means, to get them into these uh, into these high schools. And the English high school was in very high demand. Uh, so, despite that it was in you know, like a school with a relatively limited capacity, it was in very high demand by a variety of community of communities, uh, both ethnically Turkish, if you like, but also Jewish, Turkish, Armenian, and Greek-speaking citizens of Turkey. That is one part, sort of the longevity and the continuity of Beolo as an educational center. On the other hand, it also shows uh, when you look at these cables in the um, sort of these diplomatic communiques between London and Istanbul and Ankara, you also see that through this high school, Beolo remains sort of an instrument of cultural diplomacy, or well, at least the school in Beolo remains an instrument of cultural diplomacy. And that is at the height of the Cold War was particularly important eh? because, you know, like German and British governments, French governments, Italian governments, they try to remain a foothold in Turkey and retain their significance in the country through economic measures. But those were always overshadowed by the, the efforts of the United States. Uh, so these smaller countries who still had to get used to the fact that they were now smaller countries as compared to the, the major uh, superpowers at the time, tried also very much through cultural diplomacy to retain some of their status in the country. And I think, you know, you can safely argue that the schools were very important in that. Huh? And I show that in the case of the English high school, but also in the case of the German high school. These two schools and various other schools, uh, they show uh, sort of you know, like how these European states try to uphold good relations with Turkey and also create a new elite, if you will, economic and political, that was sympath- sympathetic to the German or British cause. Uh, so there is also some sense of you know, 
like not political indoctrination, but a softer cultural indoctrination or sensitization to the uh, British or German or French or Italian cultural sphere. Most of those or many of those schools were in Beolu and through those schools, Beolu also remained, you could say, a center of cultural diplomacy for these states. Let's bring things up to the, the present day. We were talking actually before we started about how the area is changing, even you know, as the months pass. I'm seeing differences in terms of the number of tourists since the pandemic. And particularly this year, it's just completely exploded with the ex- with the opening of Galata Port, the area around here in Topane and further afield. It's just there's, there's huge numbers of tourists coming in, just never ending flows of people, it seems, and traffic. We're increasingly realising, I think, that uh, Galata Port is having this game changing effect on the urban fabric kind of ripple effect from that center there and there's this mixture really of arab tourists western tourists syrians of course and you know a lot of people have commented on it but it's a kind of new cosmopolitanism that's emerging and there's much less sympathy i think among the locals for this new form of cosmopolitanism because it's being associated with economic struggles the you know soaring price of rents inflation in the area and it just really does contrast quite strongly i think with this earlier idea of cosmopolitanism and nostalgia that you talk about in the book that Beolu has always been associated with you know how does this new form of cosmopolitanism are there similarities and where does it differ of course i mean you already mentioned sort of the example of the of this article in the new york times so so there we see sort of a repetition or reproduction if you will of this quite old idea of you know like a a bailo or in that in his case you know like the istiklal jadisi in demise i mean that's a recurring theme i mean that will come back you know like every 10 20 years or so as to this issue of cosmopolitanism, I believe, you know, like that that never really existed, apart from what I and other scholars, you know, like defined as sort of as this limited cosmopolitanism, which was very much, very much an elitist phenomenon. On other levels, more broadly speaking, we see mostly a multiculturalism. And in that sense, also this multiculturalism is not very new. But the composition of who constitutes actually sort of, you know, like the converging of these communities uh, into one shared space has changed over the past couple of years again. So what you see in response to that is, on the one hand, that different generations cultivates, you know, like this idea of an older Beolo, their Beolo, or basically the Beolo when they were in their, say, like late teens or 20s, early 20s, that now is gone. So they are yearning for not necessarily, you know, like the room or Armenian speaking communities, who, by the way, often also spoke French, actually, at least in the, in the elite strata of societies. But they are yearning for maybe, you know, like the rock bars of Beolu, or they are yearning maybe, you know, like for the fact that you could drink beer on the stairs of the Galata uh, Tower. Uh, so different times create different sort of places of memory and different, you know, like content of that personal, cultural, social memory, you could argue also. So that is a process that you definitely see happening at the time, at this time as well. And, you know, like at its ugliest, that also creates, you know, like new antipathies. So whereas it was, you know, like antipathy towards non-Muslim communities in the 1950s, 1960s and preceding periods uh, and later in the 80s and the 90s towards Kurds, uh, Roma communities, 
it later on became, you know, like people from other marginalized communities, transsexuals. Uh, and now, of course, one of the main targets are, on the one hand, Syrian refugees in Turkey and also Arab tourists. And they are sort of, you know, like now used sort of as the, you know, like new targets that signify a quote unquote moral deprivation from the perspective of a certain part of Turkish uh, society. You do see a great amount of antipathy towards these quote unquote newcomers as tourists. So will Galatabord be a game changer, yes or no? I'm not so sure about that. For sure, it will have a strong impact. But we need to bear in mind that you know, like there were already a lot of projects that were maybe slightly limited, more limited in terms of scale uh, that have been executed in Beolo. So I'm thinking about you know, like the construction of the Tarlabasha Boulevard in the 1980s. I'm also thinking of the you know like various shopping malls that have been constructed around East. Uh, the entire reconstruction and destruction of Taksim Square. All of these processes, you know, like they show, in a sense, you know, like often a potential for being a game changer, and to some degree they are, uh, but they are not unique or they are not, they do not stand on its own. They are all connected, you know, like to these preceding, you know, like moments of destruction, reconstruction, gentrification. And that, I mean, if we focus a little bit more again on the case of Galata Port, that area has basically been changing from a sort of dilapidated uh, dock area or port area into a up-and-coming area for artists since the early 2000s. First, uh, when uh, Istanbul Modern, so Azerbaijan decided to settle there. That attracted uh, a bunch of galleries uh, who decided to settle in, in Tophane. That created also conflict uh, with the local communities uh, who took offense you know, like with the uh, public celebrations of openings, uh, especially due to the consumption of al- alcohol, but also uh, for the mere fact you know, like that they felt threatened by these quote-unquote newcomers, though many of them actually had not arrived themselves that long ago. So Galataport is basically sort of the culmination, you could argue, of that process in Topanim. Uh, it's not like a sprint or something, it's more like a marathon of, you know, like urban reconstruction that took shape in this massive shopping mall and overall, you know, like drastically rede- redeveloped area. And so I think, you know, like it is always important you're sort of, you know, like to consider, you know, like projects like these in the light of the broader historical context and also geographic context that they fit fit into. That was Eno Massa. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 181. If that interview piqued your interest, you can indeed buy his book at a 35% discount if you join as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Indeed, all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Tourist Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members for a 35% discount. Members also get transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the 
the past seven days. Links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They're doing stellar work and they've got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more. And they've started publishing high quality on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.